that issue, the agency, the control you have over your life seems to be the biggest issue that plays a role in why people who are wealthier tend to get diseases later in life and live longer than people who um, have less money and resources. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are making their mark on the world and contributing to the common good. Making your mark, big or small, is creating a legacy, and it's one of the proven ways we can age with vibrance and deep contentment. Zestful Aging Podcast is my legacy. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who was a previous guest on Zestful Aging. Find out more about her and her new music at judybanker.com. And to find out more about this podcast, my web courses and other offerings, hop on over to zestfulaging.com. I know that everyone is feeling really stressed and anxious right now. We're all unsettled and feel out of control. So I created a free download for you for maintaining mental health based on my 30 years as a psychotherapist. Um, Just go to zestfulaging.com and it is all yours. Well, I've got my little loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, and he's giving me a longing look because he hasn't had a walk in a couple days in upstate New York. So let's begin. We have a great interview for you today. But let me start with a question, and that is, what is the most important factor in being healthy? Exercise? Diet? Meditation? No, it's your zip code. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Lindo Bacon, who has spent their career studying the intersection of health and social justice issues. Their newest book, Radical Belonging, How to Survive and Thrive in an Unjust World While Transforming It for the Better, is a deeply personal look at how their gender identity caused them to experience discrimination and unbelonging and how those kinds of experiences have real and observable effects on our neurobiology. Welcome to the show, Lindo. Delighted to be here, Nicole. Oh, good. Thanks. Um, I wanted to start off with a term you use in the book, and it is allostatic load. It's a really important concept in the book. Can you explain what allostatic load means? Sure, Nicole, and I think that's a great way to bring out the major point that you discussed right away in terms of the contributors to our health. I know that when people are older, they're much more likely to get diabetes, to get um, diseases, things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease, and often we blame them on our eating habits or our exercise habits. But what many people don't realize is that the diseases that we often get later in life are really about a cumulative effect of a lifetime. And that the cumulative effect of our lifetime is rarely about behaviors, or I should say in other terms, that behaviors play a smaller role. 
And the larger thing that has an impact on us is the social conditions, like how we live our lives and what kind of opportunities we have, what kind of resources we have, the roadblocks that get in our way of being able to achieve things, that all of that has major impact on our life and embeds in our body. And the cumulative effect of that stuff builds up over time and then shows up in the diseases that we get later on. Mm-hmm. And that's what we mean by allostatic load. It's the load that's been placed on your body that's built up over time. And there are physiologic mechanisms through which this happens. Many people have heard, for example, about cortisol, which is a hormone, and it's a stress hormone that's released when you're having a hard time. And cortisol is one of the major contributors to the allostatic load on your body. So um, the cumulative effect of having stress responses over time builds up and affects you later in life. That is so fascinating. So for anyone who thinks sort of mind-body dynamics are separate, I think what you're saying is it's the context in which you live, which of course is interpreted through your brain, your mind. Am I getting that right? You are. And I want to bring up another really, really important point that, that you had named earlier. And that's that all of us experience stress to some extent. Um, For example, think of somebody who might be chief executive officer of a large company. That's an extraordinarily stressful position. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole myth that it's the CEOs that are getting heart attacks. But when we actually look at the data, that's not true. It's the janitor that's working for the CEO that's much more likely to get a heart attack than the CEO. And that's because the janitor has very different stressors in their lives, but also probably leads a stressful life. You know, for example, it might be hard to support yourself or a family on the salary of a janitor. Janitors may not be treated with as much respect. Um, You know, there are other reasons why that could lead to a, a lot of stressors. And what we find is that when you have more agency in your life, and by agency, I'm, I'm referring to more control over your circumstances, mm-hmm. that allows your body to better handle the stressors that come up and decrease your allostatic load. So for example, yes, the CEO has a lot of stress, but when they get sick, they can hire, you know, someone to go take care of their kid mm-hmm. and take some time. Well, maybe they, it's hard to take time off work. That's not the best of examples. Um, but, you know, they can hire if their car breaks down, mm-hmm. they can get a cab pretty and pay for it to be able to get them to their next appointment that they have ways of kind of managing their world. Whereas 
They have um, choices, right? They it, could get takeout. They can get food delivered, whereas people with less resources have to schlep out on the bus and get it themselves. Exactly. And that issue, the agency, the control you have over your life seems to be the biggest issue that plays a role in why people who are wealthier tend to get diseases later in life and live longer than people who um, have less money and resources. Do you think it's too simplistic to say that there's a huge correlation between privilege and health? Um, Absolutely. Well, uh, no, I don't think. (laughs) Okay. It's too simplistic. Yeah. How to respond to that negative. But absolutely. Um, The more privilege you have in your life, we find that people live longer and get and are less prone to diseases or getting them later in life. Mm. That's that really is is pretty clear then. That puts a very fine point on you know, the effects of poverty and uh, oppression. It's not just inconvenient or uncomfortable. I think what you're saying is, you know, the human that experiences that is just vastly, well, I don't even know what the word is. It's so unfair at every single facet of their lives is affected by poverty, not just not being able to buy a filet mignon, but you're saying their very health, the core of their very uh, wellness is greatly impacted. Definitely. And it gets much worse than that, too, when we think of the typical public health solutions, because Typically, what happens is then we send a message out to everyone, well, eat better and exercise regularly, and we make it about personal responsibility. When, in fact, if we really want to improve people's health, we could be much more effective if we do things like lower the minimum wage. But instead, we put the responsibility on the individuals and we blame them for Mm -hmm. their behaviors when that's not really the real issue that's going to improve health. It's almost insulting, I think, for someone who's living uh, at the poverty level to say, eat more kale and, you know, and make sure you take your walks. Exactly. It blames them. And that's not going to be the big thing that's going to make a difference in their lives. It's not a solution. So not only are they feeling like it's all their fault, but then when they try to do those things, um, they're not successful at, at living longer or improving their health. So it's really quite tragic right now. Mm-hmm. We really need to reconsider the public health messages we're getting out and how we can really be helping people and really the best way we can be helping people is by tackling inequity. Mm -hmm. All kinds of inequity. Now, your book is very personal um, and talks a lot about the effects that have been felt by by you as a trans person um, in terms of treatment, inequity, and unbelonging, you know, your words. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I should preface my response by saying that 
I actually come from an extraordinary amount of privilege, and there are so many ways in which my life has been easy. And if I'm going to think about what what's the predominant like experience that I've had, it's about privilege. But there is one way in which I've been disadvantaged, and that is in being queer and or two ways, queer and trans. And for people who aren't familiar with those terms, I use the word queer as kind of an umbrella term in terms of sexual orientation to say that I don't fit into that typical heteronormative category. Mm -hmm. Um, Queer is just a broad category for people that don't identify with the typical roles, right? And I use the word trans also as an umbrella term to encompass all of the ways in which people's gender identity doesn't match up with what is expected. So for example, um, like when people are born, they're usually assigned a gender, this idea that if you have a penis, for example, you're a boy. Mm-hmm. And my gender identity doesn't ident- doesn't match up with what was assigned to me at birth. Okay, but anyway, so, th- so those are terms we use. Um, and uh, to be a little bit more specific, I'm, I'm um, genderqueer, or another word I use is non-binary, mm-hmm. meaning I don't identify as either a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. Okay, but regardless, Growing up, I always got a strong message that I was a girl and that girls were supposed to be feminine. And anytime I deviated from that, I got a message that there was something wrong with me. And what I learned over time was I learned to kind of suppress the masculinity, suppress the attraction that I had to women because... I, it wasn't safe to do that in the culture that I was growing mm-hmm. up in. And so what that meant was that people weren't really seeing me or getting to know me because I was projecting something that I was trying to project something that was very different than who I felt at core. And when you have a lifetime of these experiences, it wears on you. And we can look at all of the different physiologic manifestations of this over time. For example, one of the things that it um, is that I've, I've developed a certain hypervigilance in the world, you know, where I expect people to reject me. And so I'm, I, I see that I'm more likely to see that even if it's not there. Mm -hmm. And that's a common experience that people who have been marginalized have is you become less trusting over time because Mm -hmm. experience has taught you that it's safer to be less trusting and to keep your guard up. And that is a real legitimate fear because people are getting hurt and, and killed, as we know, for their sexuality. Exactly. Now, um, which brings up the whole issue of intersectional identities. I'm not in that category, you know, like I'm much as a white person with Mm -hmm. um, a lot of other social privilege. 
I'm not in that, you know, the likely percentage of people. It's the um, black trans women that are much more likely to get murdered. You keep adding in all of the ways in which the culture doesn't respect all of the different social identities you have, and life gets harder and harder. Mm-hmm. Hello, everyone. I wanted to tell you about a product I've been using lately for aches and pains that's really helped me, and I've been singing it from the rooftops. Some of you may already have discovered the benefits of using CBD. I have found it to be a game changer for my creaky joints. I'm a tennis player and I have three dogs and being active is really important to me and we know how important it is in aging well. But at age 59, my joints can be a bit stiff, uh, especially in my knees. And this stuff has really helped so I don't have to wear a knee brace anymore which really wasn't such a good look. I've done my research and it's very important to get the highest quality ingredients. There's a lot of junk on the market, so you have to make sure the product is tested by a third-party lab at the very least. My favorite company is called Pros, P-R-O-Z-E, and they have several products that are formulated for specific problems, including sleep and mental focus. Uh, Lately, I've been using the performance gum called Yippies and the Nods, which helps me sleep and tastes very cinnamony. If you go to their website, pros.com, and enter the coupon code ZESTFUL, you're going to get 15% off. I highly recommend trying it out. I think you're really going to be surprised how effective it is, and I would love some feedback from you on how it works. Again, the website, pros, P-R-O-Z-E dot com, coupon code is zestful. Thank you. Now back to the show. Well, you know, we haven't talked about this before. Uh, I'm curious. My uh, grandmother is from Poland. Uh, she's Jewish. She She's no longer alive. But So my mom's side of the family is all from Brooklyn, immigrants, Jewish immigrants. And um, obviously, there's a legacy there. And I wonder if there, that was another piece of intersectionality growing up in your family. Was it seen as like, we don't know what you're doing, but, you know, that can't be as big a problem as we faced in our history as a culture and a religion. Is there any, any of that going on? Okay, so the audience might not know that I, um, I share that, like my, or I'm not sure even if I wrote that in that book, but um, I also have Polish roots, and my family came over as immigrants and lived in Brooklyn as well. I didn't know that part. You did write okay. about I did. I do believe you wrote about the the Polish thing because I remember thinking, "Oh, there's something we have in common." But I knew you had Jewish heritage, right? And I think that what that set up for my family was, um, you know. I was taught at a young age that you can't trust other people. The world has never been safe for Jews. Uh And, you know, we have to find community and find our own. You know, nobody was taking in the Jews and protecting them. 
when we needed it. So that's another layer of learning to distrust other people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure too that it set my parents up to think that the better we can fit in and show people we're just like them, Mm -hmm. the easier life is going to be. So maybe that contributed in part to why it was so important to them to get me to conform. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we know that parents who have, well, Jewish parents, whether or not they have relatives who uh, were in the camps certainly come to parenting with their own legacies. Um, And I was just curious whether that, you know, you didn't, and you didn't have to be in the camps, obviously, but I was just wondering if that was another piece of, um, you know, how this was framed for you, how being non-binary kind of got perceived by other people. Hmm. Yeah. I imagine we can never really know, like, like trace why things actually mm-hmm. happen. We can only guess afterwards. Mm. Um, but I'm sure that I know that my parents love me dearly and really wanted to protect me and keep me safe in the world. Mm-hmm. And for them, a large part of that was you don't make waves and, you know, you conform. And that was what they they tried to instill in me. Mm-hmm. You bring up a really interesting point about intersectionality. You say that in some ways you've been incredibly privileged. You're highly educated. Sounds like there weren't any financial concerns that you describe yourself as upper middle class. You talk about yourself as slender, so you had thin privilege. And so you're kind of crossing over these different um, identities, some of which are highly privileged and some of which are oppressed. Right. And I would suggest that all of us, to some extent, carry this mixture. And that makes it like we all have to uniquely figure out how to navigate it, mm-hmm. how to use the ways in which we have advantage in the world to try to create opportunities for others. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know? So that's a common, you talk about sort of building community and finding connection and somehow knowing that other people have to navigate this really tricky identity, uh, hopefully would bring us together. Right. But I think that one of the challenges is that a lot of us don't know what we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're when your identities are accepted in dominant culture, you know, when you see yourself reflected in media, you can. It's way too easy to think that everybody else is a lot like like you, mm-hmm. and not to understand someone else's experience, and. You know, like I think about how I I was in a store a a while ago. So this was pre-pandemic we're talking. And I remember I I was shopping in the 
this this section that they call the men's section and you know i'm deliberately using words there because why does it have to be the men's section i mean mm-hmm. that the whole idea that like why does uh, you know being a man dictate how you're supposed to dress mm. so that was interesting but um it was obviously difficult for the woman who was a sales clerk to have me there. Like she, she kept wanting to usher me over to the woman's department for <laughs> clothes, you know, and I, and I was trying to tell her like, no, you don't see me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, I, like I've, I've, I was so insulted that she was like trying to impose this idea that she knew how I was supposed to dress. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was uncomfortable. And, you know, and, and finally I got to a place where I was helping her to understand, you know, like why she was making me so uncomfortable. And she was really trying to roll with it and learn. Right. And that was wonderful. But then a little while later, you know, I picked out something blue and she talked about how, oh, that that's so pretty with your eyes. You know, and and I kind of laughed and I said, do you see how you're doing it again? The word pretty is just so gendered. And, you know, and her next thing was, no, I use the word pretty with my son all the time, you know, and he gets that. And but what she couldn't understand in that was that a cisgender, that means something very different to a cisgender boy, right? And he might have the ability to kind of like not see it as a threat to his identity. Right. Talk. Right? I think but, I think it would be helpful to clarify for our audience what cis means. Oh, sure. So cisgender refers to people whose gender identity matches the one that they were assigned at birth. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're born with a penis and um, and you feel like you're a boy, you're cisgender. So mm-hmm. that's most people, whereas um, it feels congruent. Right. And transgender is for people, any, anybody who doesn't fit into the category that they were assigned. So you're trying to explain it. And this salesperson is tr- trying to roll with it. But also it, it sounds like it becomes a lot of work for you to try to explain the nuance Right, because all she, you know, she could just see things through her world. Like mm-hmm. her, her son had never had any kind of gender identity concerns. He was mm-hmm. always seen for being a boy, and it wasn't something he ever had to think about. You know, mm-hmm. so to use to use the word pretty wasn't for him i mean for another boy for for a gay boy Mm -hmm. you know that might have been different i mean like we all have different experiences right but for him there was no identity threat that brought brought up whereas for me it just reinforced the idea that everybody is seeing me and measuring me up against femininity Mm -hmm. and so the same language isn't going to work for me. And so how do you decide when you go out 
into the world, interact with the world, and you know, albeit a, a limited way now. How do you decide when it's a teaching day for you and you help people understand, or you just say, I want to get my, you know, this blue shirt and I don't want to expend energy telling you why I don't want you to say that it's pretty with my eyes. How, how does that go? Yeah, that's a big challenge. And I don't know what contributes to a particular mood at a particular time. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a combination of how much I feel like the I have the energy to spend <laughs> at the yes. moment and how much I feel like it would be valuable for that person. Yep. And maybe that they'd have the capacity to hear it. Right. But I was thinking about that recently when um, I was on a Zoom call and uh, there were about eight of us and we were all volunteering and we'd never met one another. And, you know, we were working towards a common cause. And at one point, the, the leader, she wanted to, like, help us bond. And she said, you know, come on, ladies, we can do this. And the, like the ladies was, it was, a, it was a, meant to be like a term of endearment. Mm-hmm. And so her intentions were really quite good. But as soon as I heard it, it was like getting kicked in the gut, you know, because it was just this real, like here I'd felt this sense of belonging and common cause with all of these people. Mm-hmm. And then it was this real sense of feeling like, oh, I'm not seen. Right, right. Now. you're on the and margins. I'm, I'm not really a part of this. And I had to think for a moment, like, so what do I do? Because these are relatively progressive people or, I, you know, and I know that if I say something right now, they'll get it. There'll be an apology. I'll be seen. You know, we could move on. And then I also knew, but that would be a distraction from the fact that we just have a short amount of time together and there's these, there's other really important thing that we need to do. So why center myself and take time? And can I, in my head, just reframe and bond with them over what we share in common and let go of this little issue of where I'm not being seen? Like, I don't need to bring everything into this every moment with but, me. but it's still a calibration that you have to make. Should I or shouldn't I? Exactly. And that's a hard thing to always have to navigate is do I push, do I demand belonging or not, you know, and what what am I going to accept and be satisfied with? And it's never easy. Yes, I can. I just imagine and I imagine also it might go in phases, depending on how you're feeling, your level of, you know, uh, sturdiness or confidence or whatever's happening in your life. Um, And then if you're feeling not as sturdy, you know, maybe just saying I don't have enough energy for that. I'll come back to it. Right. Mm. And there's that constant vigilance that, you know, people with marginalized identities need to always have, which wears on us. Mm-hmm. Is that, would you say that's like being in fight or flight? Well, the vigilance. Be, 
you have to be ready. Yeah. 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 So everything's kind of uh, on high alert. And we know that that does have wear and tear on our body. Right. And I also know that I can build up my skills to also um, tolerate that a little better and not have such high expectations that um, like I can give people a break for not being educated and for, you know, like they, people grow up in this world where they're taught that gender is a binary. Mm-hmm. So it's not so surprising that people are doing this all the time. And it's not happening in progressive circles as much anymore. People know, for example, to ask for gender pronouns and yes. not make assumptions. Right. So cultures shift and we have little niche cultures where it's not happening as much. So, you know, I can also learn to just not have as high expectations when I go out of my safe zone um, and know that I'll go back into my safe zone when, you know, to get (laughs) recharged, get my power back. Yeah, get your power back. Yes, I see that. Do you ever have like instant kind of uh, phrases that you carry around with you if you just don't want to go into like teaching mode that you just sort of have on hand if somebody says something insensitive or, you know, uh, ignorant? Do you have something kind of ready to go? I think one thing that's really helpful for me is a little mantra that this is going to make for a good story later. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, and yes. you know, I just remember, I'm going to go back into my community and, you know, this will be a, we fodder about this. Yep. Yes, yes. The other thing that you wrote about in your book, which was really striking to me, and I have to say, really changed my ideas about some of the wellness community um, uh, that I'm somewhat a part of is this idea about self-love. And I'm sure you're aware, you know, there's just a lot of self-love evangelists um, around and there's all kinds of podcasts, webinars, books. There's a lot of that going on now. And you talk about that as problematic. Yeah. Well, it's not that self-love is problematic. Self-love is a beautiful thing. And I hope that we can all work towards um, achieving it more and more. But the problem with self-love is it makes it an individual pursuit and it puts you in power. And it denies the fact that no matter how much you love yourself, you're continually going out into a world where other people might not love you back (laughs) and challenging your ability to kind of stay in that place. And so we have to recognize that there's first off a lot of privilege that's in Mm, mm self-love, right? And to recognize that it's not going to be possible for you to always be there when the world treats you unfairly. And, you know, I, I, there's a line in the book that I think is one of my favorites that, that I came up with, which is that 
Self-love is like a spoonful of sugar that makes the oppression go mm. down. Uh, brilliant. I love that. Yes. And Talk a little bit about what that means. Um, yeah, you can love yourself and that that's going to help you to be able to navigate the world. Right. But it's not going to totally inoculate you. I mean, you might still um, lose your job because of racism or transphobia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you, you might experience violence um, because people are bigoted. So it's not enough to protect you in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important point. And I just want to tell you, after reading your book, I was invited to do a conference, an online conference about, you know, being uh, sort of self-care slash self-love in, in older years. And I was talking to the conference organizer and did make the point that one thing we should just recognize is the privilege we have to even talk about this and, and that the people who are going to come to this conference are going to be able to maybe set time aside for yoga or eat something that uh, takes more time to prepare is perhaps more expensive um you know that we really have to say that and acknowledge that and not assume that everybody can go get a massage right yeah and it's a lot easier to love yourself when the world reflects love back mm -hmm. at you mm-hmm Right. But if the world reviles your body, then it's going to take a lot more work for mm -hmm. you to feel good about yourself. That makes so much sense. And, and so I think at the very least what you're saying when you're in a, um, a marginalized identity, you have got a lot of emotional work that you're doing all the time to just sort of maintain mental health. Exactly. And this wears on your body. Lindo, is there anything you'd like to say to our audience um, who might be in this very same situation, who are non-binary, but don't really know what to do about that, how to approach that? And most of our audience are middle-aged and over, um, and they might be afraid to come out. They might be afraid to tell their loved ones Um do you have any advice for people who are experiencing this? Well, first, I think that brings up another point that I find really problematic in the New Age community. There's a whole idea that everybody's supposed to always express their authentic self, you know, mm -hmm. and that, that that's a virtue we should all be working towards. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that that's a very privileged statement. You know, as I was saying before, it's a lot easier to show your authentic self when the world reflects back that that mm -hmm. self has value. Mm -hmm. And if you deviate from the cultural norms, then showing people who you are might not be met up with the same joy and mm -hmm. um, acceptance. And so it makes sense that people are going to want to hide their identity sometimes and may even be in denial of themselves about their own identities because it's just not safe to really fully inhabit themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can 
expand that to not just trans people or people that are non-binary, but everybody has some ways in which their gender doesn't fit their prescribed box. I would hope, right? Like we're all unique individuals and all of those ideas about what a woman's supposed to be or what a man's supposed to be, like nobody is that. Mm-hmm. And um, it can be a challenge though to, you know, for like to, to use like a stereotypical example, men get punished for showing their feelings. Mm-hmm. And so it can be really hard for a man to be vulnerable in the world because um, he's not seen as strong and that's seen as less desirable. I see. And so I think we can all on some some level relate to how hard it is to completely embody our authentic selves when we're told what has value and none of us fully measures up so that that's just you know a, some kind of general advice that's some real that's that's it, what's real is that you have to be more thoughtful and know going in that likely you're not going to be received with open arms and what that might feel like and if it's worth it right But then also to recognize that the incredible joy you get when you're not guarded and you show you show up and you get love back. And that's an amazing thing. So the extent to which you everybody what I really want to encourage everybody to do is to find those safe places where you can express all aspects of yourself mm-hmm. to find community. That's key, regardless of where you are in that gender spectrum. The more you can find a community that's going to accept and value your uniqueness, that's, you know, that's where you can express your authentic self and you can feel love and belonging. Mm-hmm. So if you are thinking about doing this and exploring this, to just make sure you do it in a way that's safe and 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 I think very thoughtful, knowing what the possible consequences might be. Right. And I think in this internet age, we have we all have more and more access to finding communities. But even if we're growing up in a small town where Um, It's much more conservative and, you know, we don't have any role models around us. We can always access uh, the bigger world through the Internet and find people who will be more accepting of us and who can be role models for us. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's the upside. That's the upside of the Internet. For people who would like to learn more about this book that was just published and um, your other initiatives and and more about you, what's a good place for them to find you on the internet? The easiest way is to go to my website, which is lindobacon.com. And from there, you can find links to my social media. Excellent. That's wonderful. 
Thank you so much for talking to us today and talking about some very big, difficult, uh, and, and very complex issues. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was great chatting with you, Nicole. Hey everyone, I wanted to tell you about a powerful new tool that supports your mental and emotional health in what are extremely trying times. And you may remember that I've been a psychotherapist for 30 years, and I'm always a little suspicious of products that claim to help us feel less anxious, depressed, or worried. But then I was introduced to a new kind of app called Cope Notes, and I have become a big fan. Cope Notes was developed by a guy who spent a lot of his life trying to figure out what might help support him through his own weekly psychotherapy sessions. Cope Notes is an app that gives you random texts through the day to break through some of the negative messages that might be repeating in your head. It's well-researched and has been a adopted by many mental health facilities. I highly recommend it. I think we can all use a little support right now. So check out copenotes.com forward slash zestful. I will receive a small portion of those proceeds. Um, and I'd love to hear your feedback about how it works for you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. Uh, we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, uh, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the 
clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. <music>